0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good morning, and we're going to continue to build our life upon Christ and His Word. And let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 17 this morning. If you're new here with us, we've been working chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this history of the early church. And today we find ourselves in Acts 17. We're going to consider the planting of the church at Thessalonica and Berea. And so let me read this text for us. I'll pray for us, and then we'll we'll get started learning and seeing what the Holy Spirit will teach us through his word this morning. So Acts 17, starting in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that this morning you would make us like the Thessalonians and like the Bereans, or that we would carefully consider what your word says, that we would reason over it, and Lord, so come to see Jesus as the Christ and as the Savior of the world. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been with us throughout the book of Acts, or if you're a little familiar with this book, you know that the book of Acts has a lot of miraculous events in it. Some very incredible signs done by the Holy Spirit of God. And so when people tend to study the book of Acts, Kind of naturally, that's what they're, they're interested in. They're drawn to see uh, Peter heal and, and Paul heal and cast out demons. These are miraculous events, and so they, they catch our attention. But when we tend to focus exclusively on the supernatural and the miraculous in the book of Acts, we often tend to miss what Acts shows us as ordinary evangelism and discipleship. Ordinary now, now miracles are miracles because they are unusual. Because they're not ordinary. And so, in the start of the church, the Holy Spirit was doing all sorts of miraculous things rather ordinarily to help the church begin. But of course, as church history has continued, we've seen the miraculous not go away, but obviously diminish in their frequency. There was an unusual time here in the early history of the church. But Acts teaches us not only about the miraculous events and the founding of the church and its advancement to the ends of the earth, but it also shows us what ordinary Christian life looks like, what ordinary Christian mission and discipleship looks like on a daily basis. And, And we see very clearly, particularly here in the text before us, that the ordinary life of the believer is centered around the local church in the teaching of the scriptures, the teaching of the scriptures. That's that's ordinary Christian life that we see here described in Thessalonica and in Berea. So in my observation, there are a lot of Christians today who give lip service to the Word of God. There's a lot of people that when you ask them, they say, yes, I believe the Bible. Yes, I believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe it's infallible. I believe it's a word from God. But yet, when you start examining people's lives, there's this strange and sad disconnect when you begin to examine their daily practice. Hmm. According to a LifeWay study in 2016, a third of Americans who attend a Protestant church say they read their Bible personally every day. Just a third. Around a quarter of Protestant, church-going Christians. Around a quarter say that they read it a few times a week, with half of Protestant Christians reading once a week in the Bible or less. But, you know, this sort of spotty Bible reading is only part of the symptoms of the breakdown of biblical authority and understanding. If you really want to look at the breakdown of this, you, you can look at the pulpits that litter across America. Today's pastors preach to felt needs with carefully marketed sermon series aimed at enticing Christian consumers to come. And when they do use the Bible, which tends to be sparingly, but when they do use the Bible, they they tend to pick out a random verse to help Christianize their version of a self-help TED talk. You see, this data affirms that a lot of my suspicions are correct, but there are a lot of people, a lot of people who profess Jesus, who would say they believe in the authority of scriptures, but their personal reading of scriptures and the preaching that fills our pulpits today contradicts that claim. Sadly, it's a tragedy. So we need, I believe, firmly in our Culture and our evangelical world—we need a recovery of the authority of Scripture. Yes, but we need a recovery of the sufficiency of Scriptures in the local church. That the Scriptures are enough. That we can preach them and teach them and proclaim them in confidence, knowing that the Lord will use His Word to bring revival and renewal and growth to His body. See Redemption Churches largely founded upon this premise, right? That we don't need gimmicks to advance the kingdom of God. The scriptures are enough. And as we travel to Thessalonica today, as we go to Berea on Paul's second missionary journey, we're going to see that the scripture played a central role in Paul's evangelism and discipleship. And similarly, as we evangelize, We want to confront people lovingly with the truth of the Bible, of the Scriptures. And as we disciple people, as we want to help people grow in our faith, as we long to grow ourselves in our Christian maturity, we do so through the careful examination of the Scripture. So here's the sermon summary. It's it's real simple. The Christian life is a word-centered life. The Christian life is a word-centered life, or a Bible-centered life, a scriptural-centered life. So let's look at how this emphasis on the Word of God shows itself first in Thessalonica as we look at the reasoning with the scriptures here in verse 1 through 9 in Paul's ministry there. Now, in the region of Macedonia, remember they they recently entered into Macedonia. Last week we saw them at Philippi. Macedonia is in modern-day Greece, and so from Philippi, the missions team traveled southward along the major Roman road road called the Via Ignatia, and they passed through the cities of Amphipolis and Apollina, and though Luke doesn't tell us that they did gospel work there, Paul tended to prioritize major urban areas within the province or region he was working in. So, Paul wanted to get to Thessalonica, the capital in the province. And Thessalonica had a population about of about two hundred thousand people. It's a big city. So Luke keeps the account of the ministry in Thessalonica and Berea briefer than others, much briefer than we saw in Philippi last week. But we see Paul is largely doing his normal practice when he goes into a new city. He goes into the synagogue. Paul was always looking for quick ways to connect with the people in the city, and the synagogue provided the best place to to start his gospel ministry, speaking to the Jews in that city. And so Paul, we're told, spent three Sabbath days in the synagogue, and he's teaching about Christ from the Scriptures. Now notice the sort of language that Paul uses here in, in, uh, in Acts 17 that Luke uses to describe it. We see Luke talks about how Paul, how he reasoned how he's explaining and proving, how he's demonstrating it was necessary. He talks about how some of them were persuaded. And those are are intellectual words, aren't they? Paul is teaching them from the scriptures, and he is doing so reasonably, and he's doing so persuasively. And in his teaching, he is trying to force his hearers in that synagogue to wrestle with what the Bible actually says. Here's what the scriptures say, and he does so with biblical argumentation. Paul is making a reasonable, a logical, a coherent case from the authority of God's word that Jesus is the Messiah. So, I think as we look at Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica, I think there's a few things to be learned about how the scripture should be rightly handled and taught. And I think this is important not just for me to know as someone who labors in the ministry of the word, but all of you to learn as well because you want to be discerning listeners of the word of God and making sure you're being taught correctly as we'll see in the case of the Bereans in just a little bit. So what do we see here about Paul's strategy about his teaching, his method of handling the scriptures? Well, first we see that the scriptures must be preached with authority. They must be preached with authority. You see, Paul started in the synagogue because he he had some common turf with his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, didn't he? Because both Jews and Christians agreed that the Old Testament scriptures were the authoritative word of God. They might not have agreed on the Messiah, but they could all agree that the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, they are the word of God. And because the Bible is the word of God, Paul knew that the Bible then has final authority on faith and practice. And so as Paul is preaching to the Jews, he has common ground with them because the authority of the teacher, of the preacher, is is not in the preacher himself, but it's in the Bible. And so Paul makes a case for the gospel, not from his own creative ideas, but he makes a case for the gospel from the scripture. Paul's convinced, if I can demonstrate from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills all these messianic expectations, how Jesus fulfills the scripture, that I can demonstrate why it was necessary for him to suffer on the cross and rise again on the third day, that I can prove beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is similar, right, to how how Luke describes the Bereans later, that there must be an openness to being corrected because the word of God is the authority. You see, when it comes to Christian preaching and teaching, it must, it must, it has to be grounded in the authority of the Bible. You see, the authority of the preacher does not come from the office of leadership. It doesn't come from the personality or the winsomeness of the preacher. It doesn't come from the prominence of the pulpit, how many people gather to hear the guy preach or not. The authority of Christian preaching is rooted in the authority of God's word, period. Right. Therefore, preaching must be biblical. Right. Must be biblical. We don't give lip service to the Word of God and and quote a a Bible verse to our TED Talk, right? That's not preaching. It's not. This is one of the reasons why we at Redemption Church are committed to what we call expositional preaching, right? Or expository preaching, meaning that we want God's Word to be proclaimed as the authority. And to make sure that happens, we make it our normal practice to work chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. And why do we do that? Well, because we want Scripture to set the agenda for what we're talking about every Sunday, not whatever the preacher wants to talk about that week. You see, the Scriptures must be preached as the authority in the life of the church. But secondly, we see the Scriptures must also be preached intelligently. Intelligently. That's what we see Paul doing in Thessalonica, isn't it? Now, by intelligently, I don't mean academically. Right? Those are different things. But Christian preaching demands active listening from its hearers. As the truth is heralded from the scriptures, as the preacher gives reasonable biblical arguments, it requires that you, as the listener, actually think about what you're hearing. Right? You're, you're engaged, you're listening actively. So the preaching of the word must be logical, it must be reasonable, it must be coherent. Just like Paul, when preaching happens, there ought to be explaining and proving from the biblical text. The sermon ought to be intelligible and intelligent, meaning that everyone should be able to understand what's being said and led to consider carefully the arguments presented from the word of God. Now Paul's example here, goes across the mainstream of contemporary preaching in the church today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you might have heard of him, he's the famous Welsh preacher in the 20th century, and even in his day, he was already sensing how the, the cultural pressures in the UK, let alone in America, the cultural pressures were trying to make sermons shorter, simplistic, less biblical, and he felt that. And Lloyd-Jones described his own preaching in kind of a self-evaluation. This is what he said. He said, I, I should say that according to modern standards, modern being in like the 1950s, right? <laughs> according to modern standards, my ideas of preaching are all wrong. I tend to be long, 45 minutes or so, and I certainly do not spend time in telling stories. And he goes on to describe how he got one prize letter he received from a little girl in this church after Lloyd Jones had been out of the pulpit for many weeks because of an illness. And she wrote how she was eager to have her pastor get back into the pulpit. And she said in the letter, Because you are the only preacher we can understand. You are the only preacher we can understand. And Lloyd Jones goes on and says this He says, According to the modern ideas and theories, I am not an easy preacher. <laughs> I am too much of a teacher. And there's too much reason and argumentation in his sermons, and he goes on to describe how there are some people that just refuse to bring their newly converted friends to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones because they're afraid that Martin Lloyd-Jones might be too much for them, right? They need to start something something easier. But this note from this little girl warmed his heart that this young child would say to him, you are the only preacher that we can understand. You see, deep sermons are not unintelligible sermons, right? This is something we've got to correct with the way the culture tends to think. Sermons that make intelligent arguments from Scripture must be both clear and challenging. And we just have to admit, right, this is just the reality of doing ministry in our American context today, that there will be those who don't really care to wrestle with God's Word. So they're going to be repulsed by preaching that takes God's Word seriously. They're not going to want to hear a sermon that challenges to come and think on Sunday mornings, right? Particularly right now when we can't even offer a coffee beforehand, right? How am I supposed to (laughs) think and engage and deeply with the things of God? Because for them, it's going to be uncomfortable. Many people don't want to think when they hear a sermon. They just don't. They want a spiritual pep talk. They want to be entertained. They want the warm fuzzies in their hearts. But an unwillingness to hear arguments from Scripture is not the same as being unable to understand arguments from Scripture. You see, the pitiful state of biblical knowledge in the church today is due in large parts to preachers who have so watered down the content of their sermon to appease to the lowest common denominator that their sermons don't do any good at all. And in their desire to appease everyone, they serve no one. And in their desire to compete with Netflix, their sermons become pointless and meandering drivel that ultimately demeans the gospel they claim to preach. Preachers must preach intelligently with biblical arguments from God's word. Third, the scriptures must be preached Christocentrically. That's a big word. I, got, <laughs> I had the, the team serving this morning complain about my use of big words this morning in a loving way, right? But here, be intelligent, right? Let's speak reasonably. What do we mean by Christocentrically? Well, it's really not that part of a word, even though it sounds fancy. Keep Christ-centered, right? Keep Christ-centered in your sermons. That Jesus himself instructs us that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. You remember the end of Luke's gospel, right? On the road to Emmaus. All of God's word, all of the scriptures, point us to its fulfillment in Jesus. And so as Paul is teaching the Thessalonians from the Old Testament, he is showing, he is demonstrating, Luke tells us, he is showing how it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Right? He's preaching in such a way in which he's demonstrating that all of, all of the Old Testament finds its culmination in Jesus. In the cross of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, the aim of his message was to preach Christ and to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, this is another mistake some people make today. When they try to preach the the word of God, they, they tend to make bogus errors, right? They turn the Bible into Aesop's fables, cute stories from the past that might have a moral lesson today. They make the scriptures into a moral guide of instruction. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't do this. Be kind to people. But when they strictly just make moral application from the word of God, they fail to interpret the scriptures rightly. Right? The scriptures are about Jesus. And the scriptures are united in their testimony of Jesus being the Christ. So from every sermon, Every chapter of scripture, we have to understand how all of the Bible finds its fulfillment and points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to do that. We have to preach the scriptures Christocentrically, keeping Christ centered, and as we do. And then, fourthly, the scriptures must be preached persuasively. It must be preached persuasively. The sermon is not a lecture. A lecture is an organized regurgitation of facts from careful study. All right, I've listened to many of them. Mm-hmm. And I've read lots of commentaries. And commentaries aren't sermons. Commentaries parse verbs. They engage in scholastic debates. They provide historical background to the context of the passage, all of which are incredibly helpful for Bible study. But the sermon, as Paul shows us, aims to persuade To persuade, to change people's minds, to change their thoughts, to change their beliefs. Look at verse 4. Look at what he says. And some of them are persuaded and join Paul and Silas. You see, Paul didn't preach as if he was reading a news report. But rather, he was trying to convince with the authority of Scripture that Jesus was the Christ. And that truth, Paul was urging them to understand, demanded a response It demanded repentance. It demanded faith in Jesus. And so as typical of Paul's pattern, his preaching was deeply grounded in the scriptures. He preached with authority. He preached with intelligence. He centered his message on Christ, and he persuaded others with the full weight of his logical mind and with the authority of scriptures to believe in the gospel. So in Thessalonica, there are many who received the word of God, many Jews as well as Greeks, Luke even tells us a few of the leading women in the community believed in the gospel. But as you might expect, as we've seen already in Acts, not everyone was excited to hear about the preaching of the gospel. And the Jews were jealous of these missionaries, particularly because they were convincing the Gentiles to come to Christ. So their influence, these missionaries, their influence continued to grow, and it threatened the Jews, it provoked them, so they gather a mob together, And they go to Jason's house. And who's Jason? Well, Jason's a man in Thessalonica who housed the missionaries. And this was most likely the place where the the local church in Thessalonica gathered in in Jason's house. And so the Jews get a mob together. They go to Jason's house to get ready to lynch. Paul and Silas Drag them up before the authorities. But unfortunately, things didn't go according to plan. They didn't call or anything beforehand. So they get there, and they find out Paul and Silas weren't home. Right? they just find Jason. So they say, well, Jason will do. And they drag Jason and some of the other brothers to the authorities, and they made largely exaggerated accusations, right? Look at what they say in verse 6 and 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. and They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Because it seems, based off of their words here, it seems like words have been traveling around a little bit about Paul and Silas words come down from Macedonia about these missionaries, how they're turning the world upside down, but of course we know the preaching of the gospel doesn't turn the world upside down, it turns the world upright. And the problem is that Jason is aiding and abetting (laughs) these missionaries, who they think is preaching a message of treason, that Jesus is the king, not Caesar, which of course is absolutely true. And Paul and Silas both preach, all the early Christians, Christians preached that Jesus is Lord, but early Christians were not political revolutionaries. Nevertheless, the accusation troubled the authorities in Thessalonica, and they learned from the mistakes of Macedonia. They didn't give excessive punishment and unjust measures like Philippi, and they brought Jason, they posted him on bail, and the believers get Paul and Silas out of the city by night as they go to Berea. And it shouldn't surprise us at this point, right? If you've been with us through the study of the book of Acts, we see this frequently in our experience in Acts, that there are just some people who embrace the sound teaching of the scriptures, and there will be many who reject it. We expect that. That shouldn't surprise us at this point. And we see this happen again as the missions team makes their way into a new city, share the gospel. Christian preaching will always be polarizing. Particularly biblical preaching, which is the only sort of Christian preaching there is. It's always going to be polarizing. And so the rejection from some Jews in Thessalonica is tragic. We mourn it, we lament it, but we aren't surprised by it. The same Jews who rejected the scripture, as taught by Paul here in Thessalonica, would eventually make their way down to Berea and disrupt Paul's ministry there as well. But let's secondly look here at the ministry in Berea. Now let's consider the examination of the scriptures. So the ministry continues down in Berea, and Luke describes the Berean Jews in the synagogue as much more open to the preaching of the gospel. Luke said, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see that these things were so. And what a description! (laughs) What a description! May that be said of your life, right, of my life as well. What we need today in the church is this Berean type revival. Where the whole body of Christ engages with the scriptures in such an eager way. So does the Berean response to the preaching of the gospel, does that describe your life? Do you hunger for the scriptures like this? So here are a few ways that that you, as a listener of sound biblical teaching, Lord willing, will respond and should respond to the teaching of God's word. So if the first point is focusing on largely on Paul's teaching, what biblical preaching looks like. In Berea, we see how you, as a listener of preaching, should interact with said preaching. So first we see that the Bereans were teachable in the preaching of the scriptures. They were teachable. Luke tells us they received the word. You see, there was an open-mindedness among the Bereans that made them very teachable, and hearing the gospel, because they knew, right? They knew the authority is God's word, and if they could be convinced from it, then they were open to hearing about this message of Jesus being the Christ. I think this is a great call for us to remind ourselves. You see, our culture today will constantly ask us, you know, Christians, you've got to be much more open-minded about things, about marriage about gender, about abortion and the like. And indeed, and this might surprise you, we should be open-minded as Christians. But our open-mindedness doesn't dismiss the authority of the scriptures, right? That's huge. The Bereans were open-minded, but they knew where their authority was. The authority is the Bible. And we too must be open to changing our ideas and thoughts. But for someone to persuade us, they better open that Bible up And they better teach us, and they better show us why we are reading it wrongly. We must be convinced from the word of God. And if they can't do that, then who cares what they think? The Bible is the authority. This might surprise you. Certainly, the German reformer Martin Luther was surprisingly open-minded, right? He stood before his accusers at the Diet of Worms and not only expressed resolve in that great Here I Stand speech, but he also expressed open-mindedness. Indeed, Luther's journey as this unexpected reformer in the church originated when he put his 95 theses in Latin on the, the door of the church in Wittenberg, largely wanting to have an academic debate about the Bible and what the church tradition says. And even at Worms, when it finally gets to this point and he becomes this lightning rod, polarizing figure for teaching crazy things like the Bible is the authority and that we're saved by faith alone through grace alone, they bring him in at Worms and Luther, even in those final moments, stayed teachable and open to changing his views as long as someone could make a case from the scriptures. Let Let me read for you Luther's famous words. If then... I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons if I am not satisfied by the very texts I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, now notice there, not only Luther's remarkable boldness in that moment, but look at how Luther places the emphasis in a very Berean sort of way, right? On the authority of God's word. Luther was open to correction. In fact, he invited it. He welcomed it. He said, please open up the Bible and show me why I'm wrong. But as I read the scriptures, this is what the scriptures say. This is what my conscience is bound by. You see, we must have this teachable spirit eager to to hear the the Word of God taught faithfully and clearly, even if it challenges us, even if it convicts us, Mm. even if it calls us to change. Such openness we must have as we eagerly hear the teaching of God's Word. And so the Bereans, they desire to hear more. They desire to grow. They desire to learn. They desire to find themselves confronted with this truth that Jesus is the Christ. So may you and I, may we study God's word with openness and eagerness as the Bereans. Show me from the Bible. May that be the cry. Whenever we hear something, show me from the Bible. Show me from God's word. Convince me from sound reasoning in the scriptures. But secondly, we see the Bereans were discerning as they listened to the scriptures, right? They were discerning. Notice the Bereans were not dummies who just accepted whatever some yahoo told them from a pulpit, Right, The Bereans weren't fools. Instead, they were open to hearing from Paul's teaching, but then look at what Luke says. Luke then tells us that they examined the scriptures for themselves to see whether what he was saying was true. In other words, they're they're listening to Paul with their Bible open on their laps, and they're laying, all right, Paul, what are you saying here? Okay, show me. And they're looking at their Bibles, examining, making sure that what Paul is telling them is not a bunch of, of hogwash. That what he is saying actually matches up with what God's word says. Notice how discerning they are. They examined the scriptures to see what they were saying was true. And so they heard the preacher, and then they went and checked the Bible to make sure that what the preacher was saying was correct. Now, in some parts of the church today, there is an idolatrous cult of personality that happens in the pulpit. You guys don't have to worry about that, because I have no personality right? And so a church becomes so devoted to a certain person, right? You've seen this, by right? The fame of the Christian pulpit, that, that whatever that person says in that pulpit, in that megachurch, whatever is said is largely unquestioned and unexamined. Indeed, false teachers infiltrate the church because of undiscerning church members who refuse to be like the Bereans and actually check and make sure that what they're hearing from that guy's mouth actually matches what God's word says, Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be suspicious and have this suspicious posture whenever we hear the word of God preach. Please don't be that guy that's always looking for one little error to catch people in, right? That's unhelpful. But we should have a discerning spirit as we listen to biblical teaching. We should not submit ourselves to to teachers and pastors who refuse to be corrected with the scriptures. We should submit ourselves instead to teachers and pastors who we trust to rightly divide the word of truth, and even still, we check to make sure that they're teaching in what's in accordance with the scriptures. So hear me carefully. I am fallible. I am errant. You can ask my wife about that, right? But the scriptures are not. Scriptures are not. And so here at Redemption Church, we want to, to teach you the scriptures faithfully, as best as we can, teaching you what the Bible says. But even still, I urge you to examine the scriptures for yourself. See if what we are saying is true. God's word is the authority, not the preacher, not the elders, not even you. You're not the authority. The Bible is the authority. So test everything with the word of God, every sermon you you hear, every book you read, every blog post you find on Facebook, right? We must develop spiritual discernment. We must check the authority of God's word. But thirdly, we see the Bereans were daily in their study of scripture. (coughs) They were daily in their study of scriptures. The habits of the Bereans were to study the Bible every single day. And so if we hope to grow in Christ, we must commit daily to studying the Bible, not just hearing the Bible taught to you on a Sunday morning. You see, when, when discussing the spiritual disciplines which of course includes Bible reading, here's what J.C. Ryle said. He said, I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress in sanctification. I can find no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. So what is J.C. Ryle saying there? That if you want to grow in Christ, as I hope you do as a believer, If you want to become mature in the Lord Jesus, then you must, you must devote yourself to the study of God's word. Daily study and examination of the word of God is essential if you want to grow in Christ. As Peter instructs us in 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, the Bereans model for us how we are to examine the scriptures in our daily lives. But, but just as some of have rejected the scriptures, there are many who have rejected the scriptures completely and who go beyond that, not just rejecting the scriptures, but attacking the scriptures. Of course, we see that in Berea as well. Many believed in Christ, Luke tells us, including several Greek men and women of high standing. But again, the pattern is replicated There are many who accept the gospel while others will reject it. And as the gospel was going forth in power, the the jealous Jews from Thessalonica heard about the ministry going on in Berea. And so they traveled to disrupt it, agitating, stirring up the crowds against Paul and Silas. So the missions team prepared for their departure and got Paul out of the city immediately and sent him down to Athens for his own protection. See, the preaching of the gospel is polarizing. But the Christian gospel is the biblical gospel. The gospel isn't what we make it. The gospel is what God has revealed through his authoritative word. So therefore, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to discipleship in the Christian life, the word of God must be central to our ministry. We proclaim the good news of Jesus. We proclaim his suffering. We proclaim his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We herald the good news that Jesus has overcome sin, overcome death as he conquered the grave and rose again on the third day. And we do so by proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised king. And we herald the good news from the scriptures that anyone who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus as Savior would have eternal life. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I I preach this gospel to you today, not from my own authority, but from the authority of God's word. Examine the scriptures for yourself. Be open to what you hear. Check the Bible and make sure that what you hear is true. And make no mistake about it this morning. I aim to persuade you, to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ. And I invite you to wrestle with the scriptures here at Redemption Church. May we be a safe place for people to wrestle with God's word, particularly those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God, by his grace, save and redeem and build up his church as his word is preached, as it's carefully examined and studied. And if you are a Christian today, I would just urge you, urge you, to study the scriptures. Study the scriptures. I know that we are a church that loves the word of God. and Praise God for that. But may our devotion to God's word not merely be lip service, but in your daily life, like the Bereans, may you be opening up the word of God, studying it, examining it, memorizing it, teaching it, discussing it. May the word of God define our lives together as redemption church. As we seek to proclaim the word of God, not just to one another, but to our city and to our world. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word. We're grateful, Lord, that we have a sure foundation. The message of the apostles and the prophets laid upon the cornerstone of Jesus himself. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the Bible. We thank you that we have a sure and confident guide leading us into the truth. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that as Redemption Church, we would be a people devoted to your word, that we would teach it and proclaim it faithfully, that we would be a people defined by the study of Scripture, both privately and in our community with one another. Lord, may the word of God constantly be on our lips. May we be meditating upon it. May we constantly be examining the word of God. And Lord, through the study of scripture, may your spirit come and mature us and sanctify us and enable us with your spirit's power to proclaim the gospel with great reason and winsomeness and persuasion, Lord, that you might save and redeem those who are lost and blind. So Father, we pray, Lord, that you would work, particularly as we come to your table now, and Lord, that you would remind us of the blessed truths of of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who laid down his life for sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.